Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon the generous financial contributions of our listeners in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. Uh, would you please uh, support Fighting for the Faith financially by joining our crew or sending in a donation to uh, support us financially? You can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the Join Our Crew button. That's a mere $6.95 a month. Or if you'd like to make a flat contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Friday, October 1st, 2010. Can you believe it's October already? Fourth quarter. Woohoo! You know, every time I go around the uh, sun, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm on this planet that circles the sun, and every time I go around the sun, it seems like the next lap around goes quicker. I assume that if the Lord tarries and I make it till 80, that, you know, things will be spinning so quickly that uh, I'll be, well, dead before you know it. (laughs) Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God, have a little bit of fun along the way, and uh, do some serious biblical work. We also do a lot of that. Uh, Today is Friday, and uh, we're uh, true to our normal thing that we do, although I reserve the right to be irrational and to do Friday Light on other days. Today we're going to do Friday Light. And uh, I've uh, found a fantastic, uh, out in my archive somewhere, I've discovered uh, some old uh, Walter Martin recordings. And I found a recording from Dr. Walter Martin on the Gospel of the Resurrection. And he works through, uh, you know, he works through the objections to the, uh, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it's just a fantastic apologetics lecture, and I love the boldness that he does, uh, that, he, that he used to present. And uh, I pray and aspire uh, to that uh, type of boldness uh, as I approach the microphone every day and, and as I have opportunity to proclaim Christ and him crucified for our sins and resurrected again for our justification. So without any further ado, here is Dr. Walter Martin on the Gospel of the Resurrection. I want to invite your attention, if I may, to a few verses of the Scripture which are seldom ever preached on when we talk about the gospel of resurrection. That's precisely what we're speaking about this morning. I know it's fashionable to speak of the resurrection only at Easter time, but every Christian knows that all of the Christian message is based upon the fact of the resurrection. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ be not resurrected, your faith is empty, you are still in your sins. Therefore, the resurrection of Christ is not just an Easter time phenomena to be celebrated in song and service, but the resurrection is literally the dawn of every new day of our lives and of our witness. Because Christ lives, the scripture says, we will live also. The scripture tells us in the fourth chapter of the book of the Acts, verse 33, with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them. We're told in Acts chapter 10 
that to him, that is Jesus Christ, give all the prophets witness that whosoever believeth in him shall receive the forgiveness of sins. Now it's obvious that the concept of resurrection is inherent in the very structure of New Testament theology. The early Christians were absorbed, if we may use the word in its proper sense, obsessed quite properly with the concept of resurrection. The resurrection, in this case, of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all mention the resurrection of Jesus Christ. John goes into great detail to point it out in the 20th chapter, specifically spelling out that these things are written that you might believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. Well, believing what? Believing that he is the Son of God, but he is only the Son of God, says Paul, with power by resurrection from among the corpses. In other words, if Christ is not raised from among the corpses, how then is he Son of God? He couldn't save himself. And as Dr. Robert J. McCracken once said on the subject of the resurrection of Christ, if we can claim for Jesus of Nazareth no more than we can claim for any other good man, namely that he conquered death spiritually and that his spirit has been liberated to be with God, then we have failed in our comprehension of the resurrection and the intent of the New Testament revelation. Jesus Christ is unique. Why? firstborn from among, from among the dead. That is, by man came death, by man came also resurrection from the dead. Now the Apostle Paul puts it into perspective when he tells us in Acts chapter 26, the third recording of his testimony of conversion, that we should not think it an incredible thing that God should resurrect the dead. And the obvious intention of the Apostle is to communicate that when one is dealing with an all-powerful being who is the god of the galaxies, that we should have no problem understanding that he can wield sufficient energy not only to resurrect all the corpses of earth, but to recreate a billion earths in any stage of development he chooses simply by command. For the scripture says that the universe and all its energy coheres by the word of his power, Hebrews chapter 1. Now we know that there are laws of atomic energy. Einstein discovered a lot of these things. He said, I did not design them, nor did I originate them. I discovered their functioning. Well, if they're functioning, then we have a right to look beyond the function to its source. And every effect should have an efficient and sufficient cause. All science is based upon that premise. Therefore, when we go back into reasoning, we are looking at a being in Scripture who has the energy sufficient and the application of its efficiency to sustain any form of creation at any moment he so chooses. And he is able to do this simply by a cohesive command. That is to organize, reorganize, or disintegrate all forms of energy and matter at whatever stage they may be in. And somebody says, well, that sounds like science fiction. No, it isn't science fiction. It's good physics. Because if you can cut across all the lines of force and atomic structure, you can disintegrate. Well, the God of creation says that he commands the things that are not as if they were. 
He calls them into existence by his own laws, sustains them, and when he finishes with them, can annihilate them. Why? Because all power is his in heaven and in earth. You and I can't even begin to conceive of power. We explode a thermonuclear weapon, and we think this is fantastic. And we see reviews of what can happen if a 50 or 100 megaton bomb goes off in Los Angeles or New York, and the destruction that goes out as a result of this tremendous nuclear explosion. How this must amuse the infinite intellect that is Almighty God when he looks at us in our little solar system floating around on a semi-burned-out cinder 93 million miles from a nuclear furnace which could explode at any moment and exudes more energy in a few seconds than all the atomic bombs we have exploded and hydrogen bombs up to the present moment. Now, this sort of diminishes our idea of power. Now, put it into the concept, says the Apostle Paul, of the God of creation. Is it an incredible thing in this context that God should raise the dead? It's only incredible for idiots who cannot perceive that an infinite being can do whatever he wants. It always amuses me when I was taking my graduate courses in philosophy with people who spent their time talking about how these things couldn't be. When you stop to think in terms of if God is, then everything else is nonsense, no matter who says it or what the argument is. I was talking to a professor one time in one of my courses on this. By the way, that would also include uh, Stephen Hawking and his metaphysical, not scientific, metaphysical claim that nothing created everything. Oh. <laughs> ah, it's so refreshing to listen to Dr. Martin. He, he always uh, puts some wind in my sails, if you know what I mean. Anyway, let's continue. ...particular subject of the power of God. And he said, if God exists, I said, if God exists, he is infinite. Grant that. He said, if he exists, he is infinite. I said, then if he is infinite... All power resides within him. Absolutely. And if all power resides in him, sovereignty is his discretion. Yes. I said, fine. Then God can raise the dead. He says, if he exists, yes. And I thought, now we have finally gotten to it. I've penetrated. There's daylight. Glory. I'm about ready to see a philosophy professor see the light. And then he looked at me and he said, however, let me put it to you this way. Then you start to look out. He said, if I were to die and wake up in the presence of Jehovah, I would be able to give him sound logical reasons why I did not believe in his existence while I was on the earth. And I looked at him for a moment. I said, you're kidding. You're putting me on. He said, no, I'm serious. He said, I could logically defend my agnosticism. I said, that is absolute insanity. And he said, what do you mean insanity? I said, think for a second now. Just stop and think. If you died and woke up in his presence, he said, yes. I said, you're wrong because you're there and he's there. He looked at me for a second. I said, aren't you? You've spent your whole life telling people that he's not there. You die and you wake up and he is, therefore all your arguments are invalid. He's there. 
And now you, as a finite intellect, are going to reason with an infinite intellect who knows the conclusion of every syllogism as its basic premise. And you're going to tell him why you didn't believe in him. I said, that's madness. He got very uptight on the subject right away. <laughs> Terribly upset. Because it was impugning his philosophical reasoning as madness. It is madness. It demands more faith to follow this line of reasoning than it does to fall down in the presence of God and say, Oh Lord, how great thou art. Or as Voltaire said, I confess that you are there. He was forced to it simply by the testimony of nature. But the fact that we're trying to talk about is the enormity of the God who is and the God who has the power to raise from the dead. Now the early Christians, and I'm not arguing now for the resurrection of Christ apart from the fact of the New Testament. There are other evidences we will see. But from the New Testament record, these are people who suddenly altered their whole perspective and who were basic unbelievers in the gospel of resurrection. Peter didn't believe. He went away from the empty tomb wondering. John didn't believe. He went back and finally perceived what had happened, but he didn't believe the first time. And Thomas, the worst one of them all, he wasn't going to believe what some crazy women saw early in the morning. Women are not to be believed very early in the morning, particularly if they're in a cemetery. And he was not about to buy it. Angels and lights and rolling stones and all of this stuff. I mean, after all, you've got to be practical and pragmatic and empirical. Crucified corpses simply do not get up and walk around. And under normal circumstances, I'm with Thomas. But you're not dealing with ordinary circumstances. You're dealing with what the whole testimony of the New Testament became. Namely, they did not follow a theology of an empty tomb. All they knew was the tomb was empty. That throws nothing. I cannot help but remember a noted professor who wrote an article in an erudite journal about the resurrection of Jesus. Berkeley Divinity School, I believe. And the professor said, we will never know what happened that first glorious Easter morning. But whatever it was, it certainly changed the course of history. That's not only the sand you're not supposed to build on, that's the quicksand. Because you have nothing left if you build on this. We'll never know. It used to be you can't know that God exists. Now there's a new agnosticism. The new agnosticism says you can't know the God that does exist. The philosophers have arrived at this in and out of the Christian church. But the whole record of the New Testament, the whole record of truth is that God raised Jesus Christ from among the corpses. Now there are many objections to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In fact, there are literally books filled with them throughout the ages, from the early 2nd, 3rd, 4th, 5th centuries, all the way up till the present day. But all of them fall into a few brief categories. And they can all be summed up and dealt with systematically if one takes the time and is willing to put the effort into coming to grips with the issues. And that's what I hope we'll be able to do. Now, I hope that after this morning's lecture that we have recognized the fact that the empty tomb means nothing. So we are not going to make any great apologetic on any empty tomb nor are we going to waste our time preaching about the resurrection. We laid the foundation for that in the gospel of resurrection earlier. 
What we are going to do is take the objections that have come and condense them into the various headings that they fall under and then deal with them biblically and every other way that we can do so in order to have the proper answers. Remember that the scripture tells us that Christ's message was met by opposition, met by unbelief, and everything that he said was subject to controversial dialogue. John the Baptist came neither eating nor drinking as a prophet of God, and they said he was a maniac. Jesus Christ came eating and drinking, and they said a wine-bibber, a gluttonous man, and a friend of publicans and sinners. John the Baptist could not please his age by abstinence from the world, and Jesus Christ couldn't please it by participation. Therefore, the Christian church should have learned its lesson. No matter what you come up with, no matter how forensic your presentation, no matter how brilliant the apologetic, when you're finally finished, men are still going to be either skeptics, procrastinators, or believers. Because these are the three categories we find repeatedly in the ministry of our Lord and in the ministry of the apostles and the disciples of Christ. We therefore ought not to be uptight, as the saying goes, when people turn away from the good news of the resurrection. What we ought to do is just be sure that we do a good job in answering the objections. One plants, another waters, and the Lord gives the increase. That's what we are doing, planting and watering. Let's look at the very first and oldest objection to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's found in Matthew chapter 28. And in that particular instance, we find that the people at the time had only one quick recourse to the problem of the empty tomb. And that was that somebody had quite obviously stolen the body. There was a Jewish joke that made the rounds a couple of years ago. They said that the Pope received a telegram around Easter time that said, cancel Easter, we found the body. And it was signed the head rabbi of Jerusalem. And I never forget some of my Jewish friends saying laughingly, wouldn't it be a great surprise if the Christians really did find the tomb of Jesus Christ? And of course the answer to that is, of course it would be a great surprise. Because the whole message of the Christian church has been based upon the fact of the resurrection. And we would have to not only cancel Easter, but we would have to cancel the gospel. But the people at that time had a problem. And this is the way they solved it. Verse 13 of Matthew 28. Say that his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we slept. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will persuade him and secure you. So they took the money and did as they were taught. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews unto this day. So says Matthew. Alfred Edersheim, the life and times of Jesus the Messiah, the great Jewish authority, who became a Christian and who became one of the great authorities on the validity of the New Testament documents and the life and times of our Lord, said that this was the common Jewish objection and became so through the early centuries of the Christian church. The disciples stole the body away. The tomb was empty. The answer to this automatically is the fact that they are establishing the truth that something did occur. The very fact that they bribed somebody to say something 
is proof that something happened they couldn't explain. Now, I've heard the arguments by Christian apologists that Roman soldiers never left their post. Rubbish. Soldiers leave their posts all the time. They leave it in time of peace, they leave it in time of war, they leave it for booze, they leave it for girls, and they leave it for money. And so the person who says, these soldiers were men of enormous integrity. They would never leave their posts. They were there the whole time. I wouldn't believe it. Simply because if they could be bribed by the Jews to say that they were asleep and the body was stolen. If they could be bribed that way then it could have been true that they could have been bribed by the disciples the same way there were some rich Christians at the time, just as there are today. So the argument that something happened and the tomb was empty and the disciples stole the body away does present us with a problem that the church must answer honestly. It's not going to be answered by the traditional methods which have been attempted. I'd like to answer it as I think it has to be answered pragmatically. I think that the moment you admit that something happened, you have to ask for a bona fide explanation of it. The explanation of the disciples who were themselves unbelievers in the resurrection. That the men who were scared to death of Caesar's legions and of Jewish persecution, that the men who fled in the garden and were frightened at all of the circumstances of the horror of crucifixion, certainly were in no position to go around bribing people to get rid of the body. In fact, Peter, if we're to take the record seriously, and obviously the Jews have to take the record seriously, namely that the Romans were guarding the tomb, Peter said, I never knew him. He cursed and denied him three times. This does not sound like some tremendously fearsome, awesome presence who is going to take command of the shattered troops after the resurrection. And after the resurrection, sure enough, he doesn't. He goes out and looks in the tomb and says, I wonder what happened. And John looks in the tomb and says, empty. And comes back the second time and says, I think I understand it. He's risen from the dead, but he didn't know. The people who were frightened and obviously in a terrible psychological state of mind, as recorded by the same record that skeptics have to point to to prove their own point. These people were in no shape to go around bribing Roman soldiers to steal a body, and they didn't act it. And secondly, a very important point. These men who supposedly bribed them to steal the body were the men who turned around a few days afterwards and faced the same death that Jesus was willing to face, who faced all of the horrors of the persecutions of the apostolic age, imprisonment and torture for a body they had paid Romans or somebody else to steal and hide? Oh no. Common sense revolts against that. You don't have to be a genius to come to that conclusion. I think that the objection, the disciples came and stole the body away has to be met head-on by the fact that there is absolutely no evidence psychologically or any other way that they were anywhere near that tomb. And until evidence is forthcoming, I think that Christians can honestly say their behavior patterns 
And the whole testimony of the Jews, the Romans, and the Christians at that time is that the Christians were just as perplexed about the empty tomb as any Jew or Pontius Pilate was. It was not until they encountered the risen Christ that forever was laid to rest the argument that his body was stolen. They knew that he was alive, and they believed and became the fearsome preachers of the gospel, of the good news that God had conquered sin and death on the cross and in the resurrection. And the second very common theory, which is about the landscape, that also ought to be dealt with, it's called the hallucination theory. What is a hallucination? A hallucination in kind language is a disruption of the physiochemical structures of the brain, the central nervous system, affecting the mind. So that a person thinks that they see what they desperately may want to see. That's a hallucination. Now, there are other shades and variations that we can get from the psychologist and the psychiatrist, but they differ among themselves. The important thing is, a hallucination is not a reality. It's what you believe that you are experiencing. Thus, we speak of hallucinogenic drugs. We talk of LSD and hashish and pot. Now, as far off as you might want to think the apostles were, they were not on acid. They were not on hashish. And there's not the slightest fragment of evidence that anybody was stoned at this particular time. Therefore, I think it's reasonable to suppose that when they talk about a hallucination occurring, we examine it for exactly what it is. A hallucination is a very subjective thing. I might have a hallucination that I just saw Napoleon Bonaparte down on the corner of La Mirada and Granada. I might have that hallucination. But if we took the entire building down there and we all stood on the corner, none of us could confirm my subjective hallucination. That is a scientific fact. Because the hallucination, like beauty, is in the mind of the beholder, in the eye of the beholder. Therefore, when they talk about the resurrection of Jesus Christ being a hallucination, Mary Magdalene might have had a hallucination. That's granted. The disciples on the road to Emmaus, no way, because they could not possibly have been privy to each other's minds. So they wouldn't have been seeing the same thing. No hallucination for them. I can see a hallucination for a couple of frightened frustrated and depressed Christians and I could grant this to the worst skeptic and unbeliever but 500 brethren according to Paul saw the Lord Jesus after his resurrection and I submit the impossibility of 500 identical hallucinations at the same instant that takes more faith to believe than the resurrection therefore the person who says it was a hallucination is always the person who hasn't considered the evidence. Everybody couldn't have been hallucinating simultaneously on the same data. Not unless they were all taking the same drugs. And again, I would say, habeas corpus produced the body of the evidence and is not there. 
Now to the third group that are always involved one way or another. This is the group of psychologists and psychiatrists and those who are oriented in this direction who like to describe Christianity as Sigmund Freud did, as a type of mass hypnosis, particularly involving the resurrection. What really happened to these people is <coughs> they so desperately wanted Jesus to rise from the dead that they created an aura of auto-suggestion or mental hypnosis. And whenever the thought came into their minds of Christ, immediately their minds were subject to any form of stimuli or impulse. So obviously, what happened when those 500 people saw Jesus? It was a case of mass hypnosis, right on the spot. And that explains it perfectly. When the other people saw Jesus, they hypnotized themselves. Now you may say, do people really believe this? Yes, they really do believe it. Very sober, highly educated people in institutions of higher learning, including seminaries, talk this way. But the fact is that we are talking about theories. And the theory, classically, is a magnificently developed idea ganged up on by a brutal bunch of facts. All right, we're going to pause right there and pay some bills. If you would like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you could do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. If you think God is a black woman named Papa, then you need to get out of the shack and read your Bible. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Your church's praise band plays songs that worship you rather than God. Then you might need a new church. If your church's praise band plays songs that worship you rather than God and your pastor always preaches the law but never the gospel. You see, it takes more than belief. It takes more than faith to really please God. Then you might need a new church. If your church's praise band plays songs that worship you rather than God, your pastor always preaches the law but never the gospel, and your pastor cares nothing about you personally. We have people come to this church going, I want a church where I can know the pastor. I could never go to a church where I can know the pastor. You need to leave. I don't have time. I love my wife, I love my kids, and I will not sacrifice my, my family on the ministry altar so I can come eat food that I don't like and hang out with people that make me uncomfortable. And then you might need a new church. If your church's praise band plays songs that worship you rather than God, your pastor always preaches the law but never the gospel, your pastor cares nothing about you personally, and Jesus and the Bible only make cameo appearances during the sermon. 
I heard a story about a farmer that had an old mule that had fallen into an empty well. It was about 40 or 50 feet deep, and the farmer was so disappointed. He really loved this old mule. Then you definitely need to find a real church. This has been a public service announcement from Pirate Christian Radio. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. All right, we're back. Warning, if your pastor, Bible professor, or seminary prof is basically attacking the resurrection of Jesus, stop paying that person. Get out of there quick. They're not teaching you the truth. Need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. You can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com, When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically. That's right. It's an automatic thing. Automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the donate button. Or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 4600. Three eight. Okay, well, let's uh, continue now. Here is the balance of uh, Dr. Walter Martin, the late Dr. Walter Martin's lecture on the gospel of the resurrection and the uh, the uh, evidences, the apologetic evidences uh, that refute the claims against the resurrection. Here is Dr. Walter Martin. What I would like to see is a lot less theory and a lot more evidence, but the evidence is always missing and highly unscientific. Mass hypnosis. This is what happened. Well, I happen to know something about hypnosis. I spent quite a number of years learning about it and learning how to hypnotize. And I think I can say with some degree of authority that mass hypnosis through a television medium, mass mass hypnosis by radio, mass hypnosis by pendulum or light fixation, mass hypnosis can be accomplished with 500 people in a building, say, this size, given the proper capacity of projection. But mass hypnosis without the mass media, mass hypnosis without a professional hypnotist, 
who really knows what's going on. And mass hypnosis and the chances of everybody in this room becoming subject to my capacities to project an hypnotic image is utterly outside the realm of sound reasoning and statistics. Now, if somebody that knows how to do it would have difficulty bringing all of you under the most favorable circumstances in a mindset known as hypnosis, how would it be possible for 500 Christians knowing nothing of hypnosis and totally unaware of any of the media which we have at our disposal, not in a building like this in ideal circumstances, but out of doors in a meeting. How would it be possible for them to be subjected to hypnosis? The answer of professional hypnotist to this is, and I quote, extremely unlikely. In fact, virtually impossible. Now, the person who talks about mass hypnosis is the person generally who knows nothing about hypnosis. Kreskin on television can create all kinds of phenomena in a studio by a simple technique of hypnosis. Now, he says it's not hypnosis, but it is. And it takes a long time to get to the place where you can do it, and he does it very well. But anybody that knows anything about the subject knows what he's doing. We did not have Kreskin post-resurrection. We did not have Ralph Slater, the world's foremost hypnotist. We do not have the people who had all these capacities because nobody knew what was. And therefore, to take mass hypnosis today and transpose it to the time of the apostles is an utterly unbelievable occurrence. That requires enormous faith. And I don't think that we can seriously consider it. And then, of course, we have the people who always talk about Jesus didn't really die on the cross. A few years ago, I received a telephone call from NBC, and they said a gentleman is coming over from England who is a very erudite scholar. His name is Dr. Hugh J. Sconfield, and he has written a book entitled The Passover Plot. This is a bestseller. Dr. Sconfield has come up with something that's truly revolutionary and new. And I said, go on, because I've served on a nighttime radio show panel for the last 11 years. And I have spent my time debating Madeleine Murray O'Hare, and then I was going to debate Dr. Sconfield, and I did. And every assorted kook, atheist, agnostic, skeptic, occultist, cultist that was in the neighborhood. And when they couldn't find any in the neighborhood, they would fly me around the country to participate in other panel shows where they had some live ones there. It was a very fascinating occurrence when I could sandwich it into my schedule. So I said, well, what do you want me to do? And they said, well, since you're a biblical scholar, we want you to go on with Dr. Sconfield because we know it'll be on a high level. I said, we, we, we do? <laughs> the NBC spokesman said, why, of course, he said, but Dr. Sconfield is a recognized scholar. I said, well, I accept the opportunity. And a newspaper man and myself were the sole guests for five hours on NBC to interview and discuss this great new discovery. And what was the great new discovery? We have a tape of this. It's fascinating to listen to. The great new discovery is that Jesus never really died at all. 
When he was on the cross, he lost so much blood that he passed out. And some of his disciples managed somehow surreptitiously to get some form of drug up to him in the cup that was given to him on the cross, which incidentally the New Testament says he didn't drink. But we never bother with little details like what the text says. The only thing that's important is how the theory goes. And so Jesus drank from the cup, they said. And then collapsed. They took him down and brought him into the cool of the tomb. There he revived, gathered enough strength to be fed by his disciples and built up so that he could make his resurrection appearances and tell the people that he was the Son of God with power by resurrection from the dead. I don't know how many of you are acquainted with the Roman crucifixion, but it was preceded by a scourging in which the Romans took the proverbial cat of nine tails, probably doubled, and then with lead pellets on the end of it, beat you on the back and chest and legs until you couldn't stand up anymore. After they did that, there were assorted other little goodies that they had in mind for you. The idea being to weaken you so that your agony on the cross wouldn't be so long. And Jesus of Nazareth underwent this, plus all of the other things and the games hailing him as a king. He was a powerful man because he endured a great deal. When he came out, he was so weakened that he could not carry the cross and it was necessary for Simon the Cyrene to do so. What is so interesting about the account of crucifixion is that when Christ was truly crucified on the cross and the spear was thrust into his side, the scourging alone would have been sufficient to reduce all of his strength. But the centurion who was an eyewitness said that he was dead. And the phenomena which accompanied it, the rending of the veil of the temple, the great earthquake, and the people recognizing the darkness that was on the face of the earth, all of which is not denied by contemporary Jewish or Roman history. All of these people knew one thing. Nobody ever came off that cross alive. And certainly not in shape to come out three days later and discuss it without penicillin, without antibiotics, and without the very best medical treatment of the University of Jerusalem Medical School, which was non-existent. Jesus could have died normally of at least a dozen things in the three days. And yet, the swoon theory came into existence. We were debating it on radio, and Dr. Sconfield was holding forth the position. I said, I'm wondering, Dr. Sconfield, where you first got this idea. He said, in my labors in the New Testament. I said, that's funny. I said, um, it seems to me that at least four other people had the theory before you did. He said, what? I said, yes. I said, I don't know whether you're aware of it or not, but there was a theologian by the name of Paulus, a theologian by the name of Friedrich Schreiermacher, and a theologian by the name of Venturini, all of whom said exactly the same thing in one form or another. Dr. Scarfield said, I never heard of them. I said, I didn't expect that you would because you're not a biblical scholar. 
And right at that moment, the control director at NBC's eyes went wide open, and I knew that my microphone was going to get cut off unless I explained it in a hurry. And I said, the reason you're not a biblical scholar is because of the letters and cables I have in front of me here. And then I proceeded to show that Dr. Stonfield had never graduated from the schools listed in his books, that he was not recognized as a biblical scholar by anybody but Dr. Sconfield, that he in fact was an apostate Christian who had been ordained to preach the gospel in London and did preach it for four and a half years in London and in Scotland before he apostatized and denied his profession of faith in Jesus of Nazareth. So his objectivity as a scholar of the New Testament is like asking for a validation of Judaism from Adolf Eichmann. Well, he looked at me very hard and he said, uh, well, he said, uh, now, uh, I did go to those schools. I said, that's not what it says in your books. And I said, in addition to that, I said, if you don't know what the swoon theory is, I said, then you obviously don't know that it's been refuted. I said, by one of the great scholars of that era, who was himself an unbeliever. Gunfield said, an unbeliever, somebody who didn't accept the Christian message, refuted my theory? I said, not your theory, Paulus's theory, Schleiermacher's theory, and Venturini's theory, the one you stole. I said, without giving credit to anybody. Well, by this time, the director at the NBC, he was, he was having a small hemorrhage in the control room. And then I quoted Dr. Sconfield, nobody can refute what I have said in the Passover plot. He said, I never wrote that. I said, I never said you did. All I said was, you said it. He said, I never said it. And I reached into my briefcase and took a tape out and dropped it on the table so the microphone could pick it up, rattling on the table. I said, I've marked the tape, if you'll play it. It was an interview on station WNYC, New York City Radio in which you made the statement, and it's the voice of Hugh J. Sconfield. If you say that I am not telling the truth, I defy the control room to put the tape on. Well, the director looked at me through the glass panel and he went like this. <laughs> this is known as forensic overkill. And at that particular juncture, we got in to the writings of David Strauss, who was a very great theologian, but an unbeliever. And these are the words of David Strauss after careful examination of the swoon theory, in attempting to analyze if Jesus really could have survived and the evidence surrounding it. I read from Strauss's writings. This is a non-believer and a hostile critic of Christianity. Listen to him. Said Strauss, it is impossible that a being who had suffered and was half dead to have found his way out of the sepulcher. Now, just so Strauss is in his proper context, let me quote the entire thing so we'll have it fixed in your mind. It is impossible that a being who had stolen half dead out of a sepulcher, who crept about weak and ill, wanting medical treatment, who required bandaging, strengthening, and indulgence, and who still at last yielded to his sufferings, could have given the disciples the impression that he was a conqueror over death and the grave, the prince of life, an impression which lay at the bottom of their future ministry. 
such a resuscitation could by no possibility have changed their sorrow into enthusiasm and have elevated their reverence into worship. Close quote. Strauss, a German theologian who didn't believe, had sense enough to see that the swoon theory didn't fit anything except a convenient way to try and escape the force of the resurrection of Christ. Then, of course, we are forever plagued with the people who describe the resurrection as psychic phenomena. That has become popular in our day. What is the resurrection? Well, it's some kind of ESP or psychic phenomena that these people underwent at that time. You say, do people really believe this? Oh, yes. They don't only believe it. They teach it in quite a number of seminaries. What took place? There is the thought in the mind that Jesus survived, but that's not sufficient. There has to be more. And so, some type of spiritual manifestation, perhaps similar to the poltergeists who smash crockery, or to the images of people seen in old castles in Italy and in England and throughout the world, or even in some haunted houses in the United States. Perhaps that's what happened to them. They saw a ghost. Jesus of Nazareth's resurrection was a projection of psychic phenomena, perhaps some lingering impression of his spiritual nature here on earth. And we read this in sober judgments by contemporary thinkers. What is the evidence? Well, the only place that you can go to find out anything about the resurrection, as far as factual data is concerned, is where everybody goes, including the people who don't believe it. Hugh Sconfield had to go to the Bible. In fact, ten years before he wrote the Passover plot, he wrote another book called The Bible Was Right. And in a chapter entitled Golgotha, Dr. Sconfield said, it was not necessary to break the bones of Jesus because he was already dead. Ten years later, he was drugged and alive. What made the difference? $250,000 in royalties. And the fact that the public is looking for something sensational about Jesus that looks scholarly and sounds scholarly and is anything but scholarly. This is exactly what we see around us on every side. Is it true that Jesus' appearances after his resurrection are really manifestations of psychic phenomena? Oh, yes, say the people. Here's the proof. Mary Magdalene was in the garden, and she knew Jesus the three years of his ministry, and when she saw him after the resurrection, she couldn't recognize him. She thought he was a gardener. And then the disciples on the road to Emmaus. They're walking with Jesus and talking with Jesus, and they can't identify him. Obviously, it was a psychic manifestation. It couldn't have been the resurrected Jesus. And then we have the people who go a little bit further, a little more sensationally. They say, remember, biblical scholars now, remember the upper room, John chapter 20? Remember when the doors were all shut? What happened? Jesus appeared in the midst of them. Well, obviously it had to be psychic phenomena because if he was resurrected with a body of flesh and bone, how could he possibly have gotten into the room? The text says, the doors were shut. And then the so-called invincible argument. 
Mark chapter 16. Does it not say that Jesus appeared in another form to his disciples? Obviously, we are dealing with psychic phenomena, not a resurrected body. Now, this argument has been picked up not only by modern theologians, but by at least five cultic systems and by occultists. And people not only teach it in seminaries and teach it sometimes in the university level and college, but you find it in the world of religion as well. Now, does the biblical evidence indicate that Jesus was a manifestation of psychic phenomena post-resurrection? How do you explain Mary Magdalene, the Emmaus disciples, the upper room, and Mark chapter 16? How does the Christian come to grips with this objection to the resurrection? I want you to turn in your Bibles to find it. How many brought your Bibles, Mr. Deborah? Good, we're going to need them. I want you to turn to a passage of Scripture which gives a very convincing and powerful answer. The trouble with most critics of the Bible is that they never read what the Scripture says. They read into it what they want it to say. And this is quite different from really seriously analyzing it. Luke chapter 24 gives us a classic illustration of this. For in this passage, we find something that ought to arrest our attention. Christ walks with his disciples, and they talk together of the things that happened. Verse 15, And it came to pass that while they communed and reasoned, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. Now, I want you to notice verse 16. Their eyes were holden. The word holden is old King James English. You ought to circle it. A modern translation would read, Their eyes were veiled or restrained or prevented or kept from recognizing him. The difficulty was not in the form of Jesus. The difficulty was in the eye of the beholder because Christ did not wish them to recognize him until he had finished teaching them about the prophets and his resurrection. Their eyes were restrained. That's not psychic phenomena. They just simply could not recognize him. Now somebody might say, you don't really think that those people walking on that road with Jesus, that, that they just looked into his face and they didn't know him? That's precisely what I mean, you say. But that can't happen. Oh, yes, it can. In fact, it's possible to take any one of you out of the audience who's willing and to place you in a state of hypnosis, first level, and then to give you a post-hypnotic suggestion. I will call the husband or the wife and say, the first person that you go back to your seat and sit down next to, you will not recognize. Understand me? Yes. All right. When I say three, you will awaken. One, two, three. The person smiles pleasantly. They haven't heard or seen the thing. They go back to their seat, sit down next to their husband or their wife. I guarantee you that under no possible circumstances, short of removing that suggestion, can they recognize that person and they can look into their face from now till purgatory freezes over. You know why? Because a shot of mental novocaine has been given to the conscious mind. And there's no way to get through that shot from the memory bank's back. It's blocked. 
unscientific language, but illustrative of what takes place. As soon as that block is removed, you will recognize the person sitting next to you, husband or wife, but not until. If that can be done by hypnosis, which is simply the blocking of one level of the human mind, Jesus Christ, the risen Redeemer, can do it by an act of will. Because the fact that he's alive is proof that he is who he said he was. So the people who are arguing from the standpoint of psychic phenomena ought to argue more intelligently because the text itself tells us that Christ was the same person and the same form. He just didn't want them to know it. The same is true with Mary when he permitted her that marvelous moment of worshiping him and professing her love. What about the locked doors? What about the room where the disciples were? Nobody could get in there. You can't explain that one away. Not that easily. No, I can't. And there's really no need to. Because we now know from the study of nuclear physics that there is no such thing as a solid object. And we know that Jesus Christ in his resurrection was an ultra-dimensional being. He could appear or disappear at will, and he could will that no one know him, and, very important, he could step from one dimension to the other in his ascension from earth to heaven. The Greek says he ascended dia uranios, through the heavenlies, not up, far past the planets, but simply through the dimension of earth into heaven. Let's therefore understand very clearly, and I think it's something that the Christian ought to never forget, that Jesus Christ entered that room not by passing through doors, but by stepping from one dimension to another. If you take a cube of gold and a cube of lead and press them together in a laboratory, hold them for three or four minutes and turn them over and put them under an electron microscope, you will see particles of the gold in the lead and particles of lead in the gold. And I've often used as an illustration that everybody thinks when they come to church they're sitting on wooden benches or chairs. And everybody agrees. But you're not. You're sitting on electrons, neutrons, and protons moving at a speed approximating 186,000 miles per second. And they are arranged into what you and I call wood. Now the day we arrange your carcass and my carcass to fit with the molecules that you're sitting on, you will go right clean through it and sit on the floor without any violation to nuclear physics. You say, oh, that's impossible. Go over to Caltech and talk with them. Go to Berkeley. Go to any physics department and discuss it. And they'll tell you without a twitch that what I have just said is perfectly feasible physics. I submit that what man can observe as feasible physics in a universe created by God that God can duplicate any time he chooses by an act of will. Jesus Christ could simply move from one dimension to the other. He didn't have to worry about solid objects, neither about going through them or any possible meld with them. He simply was other dimensional. And then we see Luke, then we see Mark 16. Does it not say in Mark chapter 16 that Jesus was seen in another form Ah, say the people who believe in the psychic phenomena explanation of the resurrection and object to the resurrection of Jesus Christ on that basis. You're going to your own Gospels. Why don't you accept them? Look at what it says. Mark chapter 16, 
Now, when Jesus was risen from the dead, verse 9, early the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came, out of whom he had cast seven devils. After this, he appeared to another. He appeared in another form, verse 12, unto two of them as they walked and went in the country. The key is another form, verse 12. Now, this is a very difficult passage for some people, but it ought not to be, simply because from verse 9 to verse 20, the major manuscripts of the New Testament do not have this passage. It's not there. It's in the King James, but Codex Sinaiticus and Codex Vaticanus and Codex Beza, the three oldest, don't have it. Therefore, we know what it is. We know that some very zealous scholar tried by borrowing from Luke and trying to explain certain other phenomena and passages, added this particular section, and it's known in textual criticism as an interpolation or as a transmissional error. It is not in the text itself. How do I know? Because it says, He that believeth and is baptized, verse 16, shall be saved. That's not New Testament theology. New Testament theology never links water baptism with the salvation of the soul. The salvation of the soul comes by regeneration through the Holy Spirit, by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and through grace alone. Baptism is merely the outward appearance or seal of what has already transpired in the soul of the person. Now, obviously, I don't agree with Dr. Martin here. I think his view of baptism is incorrect. But I'm playing this for a different reason. But I just want to you know, put the marker down that this is something uh, with which I would disagree with Dr. Martin. And the funny thing is, is Dr. Walter Martin, great friends with uh, my mentor, Dr. Rod Rosenblatt, and uh, his mentor, uh, Dr. John Warwick Montgomery. They used to sit around and, and yuck it up together and call each other heretics. And, yeah, well, <laughs> back to the lecture. Now, you will forgive my digression into Baptist theology at this juncture, but I'm sure in a Quaker church I will be greeted with huzzahs at this moment, <laughs> simply by pointing out that this cannot be can canonical scripture because there are saved Quakers here and it couldn't be. And therefore, I have to accept the evidence of the Holy Spirit and the great testimony of the rest of scripture. So, even though the Quakers are wrong on this point. And even though they know I am, one thing is clear. That passage is not canonical scripture because it contains two glaring errors. The first is another form which is not the truth. And the second is that you have to be baptized in order to be saved, which does confuse the issue considerably simply because the New Testament doesn't teach it. Now, let us look at the two last objections to the resurrection, which we find very current about us today. The documents themselves, the New Testament, in their transmission are not preserved too accurately. Haven't you just demonstrated that by quoting Mark chapter 16? Aren't there other passages that could be cited? Well, therefore, if we can challenge the accuracy of the New Testament, then we might argue about the differences in the resurrection accounts. Because it's obvious that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John do not tell the story the same way. In fact, even if we resolve the chronological problems, 
it still appears as if we have great wide differences of opinion between some of the witnesses. Therefore, if your own documents have problems, how can you expect us, say the critics, to believe in the veracity of the resurrection? Now this on the surface seems like an extremely formidable position. But let's look at it for a second. No scholar questions the accuracy of the New Testament text. In fact, textual criticism and higher criticism is structured so to arrive at the best text of the Old and New Testament. Every time you find a new manuscript, you don't hurt the record, you sharpen up what you have, and you remove some of the things which have been appended through the ages. Remember something, and it's a very important point. God inspired the men who wrote it so that they transcribed it accurately and without error. Nowhere does he say that he would guarantee the same transmission of perfection throughout all time. Adam was created a perfect being, and God did not preserve us as perfect beings, as is quite obvious by the history of our race. Yet the first man was perfect. The fact that we have desecrated the record of our own history by sin does not lessen the fact that the original was perfect. Now the scripture and what we have today is an accurate representation of the scripture. The scripture speaks to us as God's word. And we're going to see that when we talk on the inspiration of the scripture a little further on in these lectures. But the thing we want to point out is that textual criticism and higher criticism gives us a more accurate text. What I just did removed two very great barriers to faith. It didn't weaken anybody's. It simply explained how two contradictions don't really belong there at all. And therefore, there is no contradiction. So, if we go into the history of the New Testament, we find some amazing things. Great scholars such as Sir William Ramsey and others using the best archaeological tools have sought to disprove the New Testament as historically accurate. What did they come up with? Every single person who ever began an investigation on a scholarly level with the attempt to destroy the validity of the documents ended up testifying to their enormous accuracy. In fact, to give you an idea of just how accurate they are, when Codex Sinaiticus, which is a copy of the New Testament records was found in the 1880s by Dr. Tischendorf in St. Catherine's Monastery in Mount Sinai. That manuscript was carefully compared because of its great age with the manuscripts we had in our possession. In the period of time from the 3rd century to the 18th, which is 1500 years, when literally thousands upon thousands of copies had been made of the New Testament. There was less than a seven percentile difference between the manuscript over 1,500 years. Dr. Bruce Metzger of Princeton Theological Seminary, a very great scholar, had said that we have right now accurately at least 95% of the Old Testament and better than 97% of the New Testament. And the margin of so-called error is minimal. No other documents on earth have ever been preserved with such fidelity and such accuracy. Each time archaeology 
digs into the past, it comes up confirming the accuracy of the documents. Therefore, the argument that the transmission of the documents and all those people who copied them must have somehow or other impugned the veracity of the record of the resurrection is totally without foundation. Those who speak the most of it know the least of textual criticism and the means of applying standards of truth. And I'd like to deal just very briefly, because it doesn't really deserve much more than that, with the objection that there are differences in the accounts of the resurrection. I once tried an experiment with a professor of mine who was notorious for not believing in the accuracy or the truthfulness of the New Testament. And I said, supposing we had the records of the Gospels originally from the hand of the apostles themselves, and it was found that every single word in every single manuscript was identically perfect on every event chronicled. What would you say? He said, it's quite obviously something like that could never happen. And I said, well, let's just hypothesize, sir, supposing it did. He said, well, I'd be very suspicious because nothing could be that perfect. It would have to have collusion involved. Now, put the two together and see how God can never, ever win with his sinful creatures. If he gave it to us absolutely letter perfect, then there's doubt about it because nothing could really be that perfect and come from the hand of man and there'd have to be collusion. These Jewish boys got together and cooked it up. But now we have a record which has less than 7% of variation in the text. And now the argument comes back, well, it's quite obvious. They couldn't even get the thing straight. Look at the differences. So if it's perfect, it's an error by collusion, and if there are differences, it's an error because they falsified. Now what possible standard of criterion can you introduce to convince a man of the validity of a document? Answer, none whatsoever. Simply because the words of Jesus Christ come back with haunting impact. In Luke chapter 16, when the rich man in hell lifted up his eyes, and said, let me go back and tell my brothers about this horror so that they don't have to come here. And God answers in the words of Abraham, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. And Christ went on to say that they will not believe even though one return from the dead. He returned from the dead. He presented himself and he changed the course of human history. And the world still says, but that really couldn't have happened. So if we're going to question the transmission and the accuracy of the documents, if we're going to argue about what the eyewitnesses said, it would be a good idea if we could produce sufficient evidence to confute it. But we don't see this evidence. We simply see a lot of broad generalizations backed up by very little concrete scholarship. And it is therefore highly suspect. Now, I do not mean to imply by this that there are not questions in New Testament theology, that there are not questions in manuscript transmission, and that there are not problems for which the church now, at this moment, 
have the solutions. Because we don't have the solutions to a lot of problems. But a hundred years ago, our problems were ten times greater than they are now. And with the advent of archaeology and textual criticism and new manuscripts, we are infinitely better off than we have ever been before on the accuracy of the text. It's interesting that in no major doctrine of Christian theology in all of these years in the transmission of documents has one bit of doctrinal theology ever been found controversial. In that there is always agreement. The Jews themselves excavated and found a manuscript of Isaiah dated reliably at 150 B.C. That would make it right now better than 2,000 years old. I saw it in Jerusalem in the Shrine of the Book. I am happy to report that that manuscript preserved over that long period of time has only one half of one percent deviation from the text we've got today. And we are still hearing arguments about the accuracy of transmission. You can't transmit Aristotle, Plato, Thucydides. You can't transmit any of the great works of antiquity with anywhere near that percentage. In fact, there are so many errors in so many of them that they are the object of continuous investigation as to their reliability. Not so the New Testament record. And so the people who are always talking about it are not producing the facts to back it up. Luke's, Luke, the book of Luke, book of Acts, 1 Corinthians, all of these manuscripts. And that's a considerable body of data. Were in the hands of the Christian people within 20 years of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Nobody else ever had that close a record of the facts of phenomena taking place that people could validate, as did these people. And finally, the last one, the best, they say, of them all. Everybody knows that when you talk about resurrected bodies, that you're talking about miracles. And everybody knows that what happened in the New Testament, anybody who really thinks, has to recognize that we are dealing with myths. You say, could any Christian ever think that way? Oh, people who say they are think that way. Rudolf Bultmann has spent a lifetime demythologizing the Bible. That is, taking all the myths out. And when he got finished, there wasn't really much left. Simply because most of the Bible is a record of God doing something, and that's supernatural. You know, inevitably, the truth of the resurrection is validated by whether or not a person has an encounter with the risen Christ. And therefore, it's personal, subjective, and existential. After all the evidence is in, after all the facts and data is compiled, the scripture says, he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he rewarded those who diligently seek him. When we talk about the gospel of resurrection, we are talking about the message of God confronting man. Our Lord said in Matthew chapter 22, verse 29, to the Pharisees and the Sadducees who argued about it and to those who denied the resurrection. You do err, not understanding the scriptures, nor the power of God. This is the epitaph that can be read over those who talk about miracles such as resurrection being contrary to experience. Let me point out, as I will when we talk about miracles later this week, 
that people shun miracles not by refuting the miracle, but by simply saying that it's impossible for a miracle to happen because we have never experienced the same miracle. I suggest that we trace this to where it came from, and it came from the great philosopher David Hume. More about him later on. But Hume's argument was that nature is a closed system, that we can observe it, analyze it, and predict it. And therefore we know from nature as a closed system that corpses that are crucified simply do not get up and walk around. So, since nature is a closed system and it rules out resurrection of bodies by being closed, therefore Jesus' resurrection never took place. I would submit an answer to what looks like a beautiful argument that it is neatly refuted by two important facts. The first is that the Heisenberg principle of uncertainty in physics has shown us that in the basic nucleus of an atom, it is impossible to know at any given moment the position of a given electron. From this, Heisenberg said that there is no determinacy in nature, but it is wide open and he demonstrated it empirically and scientifically. If he's right, and there's good reason to suppose scientifically that he is, the beautiful argument that nature is a closed system and forbids miracles disappears. Because an open system says it is possible for anything to happen. Because if the basic structure of the universe is unpredictable, God could be unpredictable. And what we consider to be laws that never change could change simply because of the principle of uncertainty. The second thing that faces Dr. Hume, he's not alive to hear it, is the fact that he who was the great empirical logician committed an error in logic. He never ever refuted a miracle. He simply defined it out of existence. To refute a miracle is to adduce evidence in proof that it cannot occur or that it has not occurred. This he never did. He simply said, nature is a closed system. Miracles don't happen in a closed system. Therefore, there are no miracles that we can prove. He didn't refute it. He just concocted a definition to eliminate it. The Christian can answer it simply by saying, why should we be concerned with people who say miracles can't happen because the system's closed? Why not say definitions don't make or break miracles? Miracles are made or broken on the basis of evidence, not definitions. And what we've done is in a very short time, comparatively speaking, gone through virtually every single major objection to the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. And every single one of them has a reasonable alternative for belief. It is therefore for us, the believer, important to note that the gospel of Jesus Christ, which rests upon the resurrection, 
rests upon evidence. It rests upon eyewitness accounts that have never been refuted. It rests upon prophetic fulfillment that cannot be impugned. It rests upon power. And the greatest of all miracles is what Christ does with the souls of men when he turns them by the power of his gospel from darkness to light. And as he promised, from the power of Satan to God. We can really sing that chorus, can we? He lives because the gospel of resurrection is not a myth. It's an existential, experiential reality. Now, today, shall we pray? Bless Almighty God thy word that it may touch our hearts and transform our souls and fill us, that our spirits may be touched by the presence of Jesus Christ with such force that men may take knowledge of us that we have been with him. Cleanse us of our sins and give us the faith of the early church to look beyond the objections of men into the storehouse of divine power and there to know that thou art with us and that thy power is available today. In Jesus Christ's name, send us forth believing. Amen. Ah, great lecture. Good stuff, well argued, and uh, I hope that you found that beneficial and useful and a breath of fresh air and emboldening. It really, really ought to and should. Now, before we go, I just need to remind you all, uh, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. You know the shtick. Go visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Find the two friendly yellow buttons, pick one, fill everything out, and let's go from there. That's right. We depend upon you, our listeners, in order to continue to bring this global uh, radio outreach to you and to the world. So, and uh, that, that, you know the shtick. So anyway, with that, we're going to uh, wind up the program. And uh, I hope you all have a great weekend. I will be spending my weekend uh, uh, deep in study and preparation for my upcoming debate with Doug Paget of the Emergent Church, you know, pastor of Solomon's Porch. Uh, emergent uh, author, writer, guru, extraordinary, uh, extraordinary Doug Paget on the doctrine of hell. So, uh, if uh, you know, if I seem like I'm not being very social on the social media sites over the weekend, <laughs> that's why. So, keep me on your prayers. Uh, this this is, uh, ought to be a great debate, and uh, and I'm looking forward to it as an opportunity to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, good stuff. Um, so with that, we're going to head out. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you could do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, pirate Christian. Till next week, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. Amen.